Miss Macintosh, my darling. Chapter 44. There had been some truth, not all being as moonbeams in this life. There was granite, and there was sunlight. The truth was less but greater than the illusion, Mr. Spitzer knew throughout the after years, slowly putting together these fragments, hints, suggestions, till the shadow of the truth emerged in the foot of her fleeting moment. How odd it seemed then when Cousin Hannah was dying that she should have spoken so much of skirts, laces, blouses, petticoats. For was she not that great bloomer girl who had been the enemy of fashion mongers and who had spent all her life urging that ladies take off their skirts, that they relieved themselves from unnecessary encumbrances, which dragged them down and weighted them and made it impossible that they should carry out successfully the battle against men? How odd that at last, that at the last, this one who was going over to her mysterious bridegroom, she should call for her skirt. Over this chapter of her history, Mr. Spitzer would certainly draw, as he might say, the veil, would never reveal to any possible future biographer that she had not been, as all had supposed, the great hero, or that if she had lived as a hero, she had perhaps not died as a hero, not even as a great heroine blowing her angelic trumpet or some old triton's horn. But truth to tell, no one had inquired for years and years. She had already lived beyond all but the most feeble memory of them. Her fame was certainly tarnished, dimmed by time long before Mr. Spitzer ever knew her. No one had brought her a laurel wreath or medal or crown. She had already passed into oblivion. The days of her loud fanfare were over long before she dies, and only he had heard her last remarks for crying. Oh, where's my love, my lost love? Where's my little snowdrop? So that he, perhaps not understanding fully all that he understood in retrospect, and his understanding would do him no possible good, had brought to this great supper's captain a handful of white flowers, snowdrops delicate as a wraith of mist upon the mountains, and then had been surprised that her agony had increased when she saw the white flowers, like snow melting in her hand, and that from that moment she had begun to fade. It was almost as if his own magic had done this, albeit it was a magic he was powerless to control. He often reminded himself of a musician who had gone and gotten loose for him to dance, conducting music of clouds, waters, winds, avalanches, the last slide seemed to go out as if the sunlight faded from her living eye, which had stared at him and was now this pale transparency, like a hole in a dark, in a dark cloud. <clears throat> she had cried for dying years, Oh, my love, my love, my love blinded by the snow, the snow and the wind. Have you gone to find your skirt, and where did you leave it? May I not warn you, beg you not to go, she cried. But little did I dream that she would not return. I would search for you through all the afternoons, or else I would have gone with you, and you would not have returned. There was no one to see you naked, she explained, your body white as the great peak blooming of the clouds. So why the sudden modesty? There was no moon, and there was no sun in the clouds, pale as ashes over. There was a false moon, and there was a false sun, and the planets were false. They were false as paper bags. <clears throat> So Mr. Spitzer thought, hearing her, that perhaps, indeed, it was all a colossal jest. For certainly it seemed strange that a suffragette should be the like, <clears throat> should the like, it seemed strange that a suffragette should the like this, crying for love, she died like this, crying for love, dead love. False modesty killed my love, she cried, and not I, not I, my love. There was no man in all those mountains. There was not the eye of a sparrow. There was not one star looking down. There were no watchers in the snow, the clouds. I cannot see you or your shadow. You turned away so suddenly, she plaintively accused. Took one soft, so, took one step soft as the snow falling through the clouds, soft as the hiss of a snowdrop. You whispered, I must find my skirt. I must find my skirt, my love. 
Farewell. Farewell, my love. And how could Cousin Hannah battling for her life influence her manner hold her back? Did not great winds blow against me, Cousin Hannah asked, and what sail had I to reef and tack, haul, let out, draw in? What anchor to cast upon the moving rock? My eyes were blinded by the snow, the wind, by the great icicles driving the sharpest swords against my bleeding heart, so that I staggered, wandered. My breath was a frozen thin, I could not see my breath. Oh, Lord, great Lord, Lord of the lost creation, is that the iceberg, she shouted, as if she were living through that moment now, as if an iceberg were charging like mad white horses with long white manes, as if she heard a ghostly boom shattering clouds. No complaining if I fall or fall not. Could I let go with my hand which should have clung to yours even through all eternity or for one moment? Was this true love or false, she asked as the wind howled. Was I false and were you true? Was I true and were you false? False as a snow glare. False as the heart of darkness and whirlwind. For false is my true love's heart. But who am I to accuse? We cannot be true together, but let us be false together, she cried and came down. Ah, my lovely bride, she whispered. And are you bearded by the hoarfrost, and are you now as I was, or as I am to come? Why are you in love with the other side of the mountain range? You who were content with little things before, veils, hats, skirts, and mirrors. You who loved cat's eyes, poodle dogs, ribbons. Why are you suddenly so grand, you who loved only trivialities, flirtatious airs? Why is great suffrage captain asked of someone who was not there? Were you in love with those great snow-crowned mountain peaks where no castles were? Where no great stone griffins looked down from the clouds of clouded heights. No light shone through a cloud, no lights at any window or door. Did I not ask for you at every castle gate? Did I not blow my trumpet in every lonely courtyard? Did I not arouse sleeping stable boys? Did I not howl in every wind? Did I not search for you through mountains of snow and deserts of snow and under crystal sand? I pitched my tent in distant mountains. I slept in tombs. Ah, oh, love, let us put on our whispering skirts. Let's gaze into our mirrors now, she sighed, and life departs. The none can see us. Some secrecy should surely be the privilege of the dead. We have no horoscope, no future. She asked when there was no sound, but the rain running through an old water spout. Who knocks now at the ivory gates? Is that you, Blackamore, the water carrier with its tinkling bells, the muleteer? What goes into the making of a mirage? Is that my butterfly, my peacock? Have I not sought for the lost image through the dusk? Do I not drive the phaeton through a cloud? Did I not go before the wave? Uh, had not Cousin Hannah inquired of white-winged birds and skiers and lonely mountains and skiing horses, chamois hunters of the chamois leaping from peak to peak, mountain climbers with their St. Bernard's nosing through snow, have you seen my wife? Is that, is not this Mount Blanc always in my heart? As she stared through the demon prison, white lady, where are you now? So Mr. Spitzer was very much confused. Much that he might have heard as would then perhaps unintelligible to a man who, like himself, was guided by his reason, even when reason failed, and who heard the beating of the heart long after the heart had ceased to beat, for the dead heart was like a sea shark carrying its own roaring. Indeed, he would have preferred to eavesdrop upon the roaring of a lonely seashell, who thus had heard many forlorn and beautiful things in his walks among the beaches. Perhaps it took a long time for such remarks to sink into his consciousness as through miles of clouds, a long time to realize that what he had overheard had been something more than he had supposed, something less. But it pertained not to the imaginary phantom or being flown along the dusk, but was the confession of this great suffrage captain's personal love, dead love which had prompted her suffrage movement in battles against overwhelming odds. She, too, had loved and lost. What was unexpected about this? She was this beau of suffrage and its martyr, had not always thought. And should he be surprised by this last logic of her life? 
find his ambivalence splitting her apart into the lover and the loved? Should he be surprised that even she should contain within her a seed of buried hope to move mountains and stars and cause great avalanches, heavy snowfall on the roofs? For all had begun, as he might say, with ghostly love, and all had ended, no doubt, with the same. That ghostly love, which was the beginning of love, like the love of the troubadour for the dead love, false lady, love founded on death. He had great problems, great surprises, had been in store at the end for his old lawyer, who, long after things were over, must go on with them, much as he heard racetrack music long after Perone's last horse race upon the star. Though why should Mr. Spitzer have heard this undying music or the starter's winding horn, or were there two dream tracks, he asked, like heaven and hell? Adventitious moments, trivial attitudes he had dismissed before. Irrelevant intuitions, which had never quite escaped from the crevices of his memory, all had somehow added up to mountains of the moon and a residue of mystery or love time could not kill. For it had never existed in time, scandalous as this great lady's life had been, filled with many tremors, many shocks. It was the silent, unknown moment most disturbing to him, that moment in which he had seen her human heart and frailties, allying her at her last hour to other ladies, and perhaps to men. Truly, if she was this woman's hero, yet she was particularly powerless. Her moth's wing brushing against her cheek might have killed her. He knew when this great golden chanticleer of suffrage could crow no more, when there was only a rattle in her throat like pebbles washed by tides. He knew then, with something like a forlorn certainty he had never previously experienced, why she had gone to a distant country beyond the eyes of men, why she was always lost in clouds and snows and sands and whirlwinds, why she had fought those incalculable wars against great lords and kings shrouded by winding sheets, why she had traveled in the deserts of Persia where there grew no flowers, why she had climbed like a sleepwalker the mountains of snow crumbling at a step above the void where no star was. If she could not be trusted then, who should trust her now? Might not some dead impulse still start up a flower bloom? Might there not be heard as in a distant cavern the beating of her dead heart? Might there not be heard the faint tide under sand, the faintest trickle? As for cowardice in the face of great obstacles, that subject seemed to him as complex, as complicated as human life, not easily understood. She was known for bravery, for never wearing the white feather of cowardice, and yet she had accused herself of cowardice when she was dying in that lonely chamber where only he was eyewitness. He seemed best with his eyes closed. He had act, she had acted as if she had been cashiered from every army and exiled from every land, driven beyond every border known and unknown. She was a man without a country. She was that poor mollusk who had no seashell, no mother of pearl mantle, Mr. Spitzer often thought, seeing this gaunt skeleton emerge through leaden-colored clouds like a forbidding post. She had acted as if she had failed in her own esteem, as if she were not that great leader she had seen. That valiant rescuer, dying lady in the windy towers, that noble crusader armored by her pride, her tenacious courage, that dashing adventurer. Others had supposed she was. So many ladies and some unfortunate men, having envied her the great exploits and deeds of prowess and deeds of courtesy, for which she had been all but immortalized long years before her actual death, which none knew, and none remembered what her deeds were. She herself had been forgotten, just as he who does not remember the whirlpool will not remember its center. Actual death could add scarcely a note to that which had already occurred. So that Mr. Spitzer's addenda was scarcely needed now, being his fate to come always at the gratuitous moment after the end. She having already passed into that tenebrous obscurity and moon-streaked fog, where were only shifting forms like flowers turning into birds, birds turning into flowers, he would suppose. That death was this eternal transmutation could not be localized. Who rung these changes? Images of lead were turned to finest gold. 
and for her there seemed a greater finality than perhaps for him, this watcher in the storm. And not the greatest heroes when prompted.